Larry Flint might be a name you're familiar with. He's been featured in books, movies, and quite a few news stories over the past four decades. Larry has had five wives, five children, and many, many more businesses. His most infamous business being Hustler Magazine, which became famous for publishing erotic content others would not in the mainstream. So how did a poor, eastern Kentucky farm boy become a millionaire pornography kingpin during the conservative times of 1970s America? And how did that success lead to a failed assassination attempt on Larry, a Supreme Court win in the name of the First Amendment, and the death of his beloved wife, Althea? Listen to the wild ride of Larry Flint's life today on Controversial Figures. Welcome to Controversial Figures, a podcast about intriguing figures in the media. My name is Tammy Hawkins, and if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comments on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find this podcast. We are on Twitter at Figures Podcast if you'd like to suggest any controversial figures or if you'd like to check out the photos that we posted of Larry Flint after the episode. Thank you so much to those that have donated to Patreon. Donating to Controversial Figures on Patreon helps me continue to bring new content, and you'll get a shout-out on a future show. I'm guessing most of you are somewhat familiar with the man and the subject matter, but for those that may not be, this episode will feature some mm, uncomfortable moments, given Larry Flint's line of work, which, to be clear, was pornography. While I'll admit it was a challenge with this particular controversial figure. I intentionally try to avoid being crude where possible, mostly to avoid feeling incredibly awkward myself. There will be cringeworthy and over-the-top moments, though. I assure you, I left the worst bits out. I believe some of the awkward details are key to telling Larry's authentic story. So... If you're uncomfortable with discussion in regards to the sexual entertainment industry, you might want to avoid this particular episode as well as the next one. This will be a two-part episode series, as there was just too much crazy to fit into one episode. So, how does one start a story about a man as iconic and controversial as Larry Flint? And give you a flavor of what's to come so you can bail now if you so choose? Well, I suppose I'll start with a quote from Oliver Stone in the foreword from Larry Flint's autobiography titled An Unseemly Man, My Life as a Pornographer, Pundit, and Social Outcast. Oliver Stone was the producer of the film made about Larry's life called The People vs. Larry Flint, and he is a controversial figure on his own that we may cover someday. Spoiler alert. This quote touches high level on a few things we'll dive into deeper throughout the episodes. 
Oliver Stone wrote of Larry Flint, quote, When you actually step inside his life, as we tried to do in our movie, you navigate a minefield of contradictions. On one hand, Larry Flint was raised dirt poor in a one-room shack in Kentucky. On the other, he knows what it is to have more money than he could ever spend. He's had sex both with a chicken and with some of the world's most beautiful women. He's been a fervent born-again Christian and a reckless atheist. He's lived a pagan, orgiastic lifestyle, but he also had to contend with being paralyzed in the prime of his life. He's been railroaded and jailed by the justice system, but he has also had his most noble triumph in the halls of the United States Supreme Court. He is someone desperately trying to obtain a certain respect, but he is also hopelessly tethered by his crude roots and the derivation of his wealth. End quote. Well, I mentioned things would get awkward, and things don't get much more awkward than sex with a chicken. With that teaser intro, if you haven't bailed yet, let's get into episode one of The Life of Larry Flint. Larry Claxton Flint, Jr., was born on November 1st, 1942, in Lakeville, on the eastern side of Kentucky. For those not from America or geographically challenged like myself, Kentucky is located in the Midwest of the United States of America. Larry Jr.'s father, Larry Claxton Flint Sr., served in the United States Army in the European theater of World War II. Larry Sr. was sent away to serve in the South Pacific a few weeks after Larry Jr.'s birth in 1942 and wouldn't return again until three years later in 1945. As a child, Larry was raised in poverty. Larry often reflected later that McGaffin County was the poorest county in the nation during the Great Depression. Larry is quoted as saying, When I was growing up, Lakeville had a population of about 40, made up of about four five families. The entire county had a population of less than 500. Soon after his father's return from the war, Larry had two younger siblings, his sister Judy and brother Jimmy Ray. Larry claims in his autobiography that even early on as a child, he had a strong sexual drive. As was foreshadowed by the Oliver Stone quote at the top of the episode, this included experimenting with a chicken at the age of nine after being egged on by some of the older boys that hung out around the farm. And that's all I'm going to share about that story. You can read the book if you'd like the details. I had to read it. That was enough. All right, got that fact out of the way. Check. Awkward. In one of my most unfortunate segues in this podcast, sadness would strike later that year when nine-year-old Larry would sadly lose his four-year-old sister Judy to leukemia in 1951. The loss of their child would prove to be too much to bear for the Flint family. The next year, Larry's parents would divorce. Larry would float between living with his mother and grandmother post-divorce. Larry went to the high school through the eighth grade, but dropped out at the age of 15. He had bigger things he wanted to do, which included serving his country. 
Larry would go on, still at the age of 15, to join the United States Army using a fake birth certificate. In regards to how he obtained the false birth certificate, Larry is quoted in his autobiography as saying, quote, The mother of a friend of mine was the county nurse responsible for filling out and notarizing birth certificates. My buddy acquired two blank but notarized forms and filled one out to indicate that I was 17. I knew I could join the Army at 17 if one of my parents signed a consent form, which he was able to talk his mother into. The Army would ultimately honorably discharge Larry. It is also said that around this time, Larry dabbled in bootlegged alcohol, but he stopped when he learned county deputies were searching for him. In 1960, Larry Flint joined the United States Navy and became a radar operator aboard the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier. He would serve in the Navy for four years. Larry would also meet his first wife in 1961 while on a two-week naval leave. You could say Larry falls in love fast. He was in a bar called Little Mickey's in Dayton when he met a beautiful blonde with green eyes by the name of Mary. Larry was enchanted, but Mary said she wouldn't so much as give him a kiss unless they were married. In a boneheaded decision by Larry, a few days later, the world was introduced to Mary and Larry Flint. According to Larry, shockingly, the marriage was ill-fated. He claimed she was a harlot and only wanted him for his money. He filed for divorce, which would be finalized four years later in 1965. Larry would be honorably discharged from the Navy in July of 1964. In 1965, Larry used his savings, an amount of $1,800, to buy his mother's bar, Kiwi, in Dayton, Ohio. In 1966, Larry reconnected with his long-lost love, Peggy. They had started a relationship before he left for the service that Peggy's parents broke up due to her young age of 15. When Larry returned from the service, they reunited. But there was a secret Peggy had to reveal to Larry. While Larry was away in the military, she claimed her parents forced her to go out with another man they approved of. Note they hated Larry. And she had become pregnant. She undressed to reveal a very swollen tummy to Larry. Larry was not happy about the situation but he was in love with Peggy, so he married her. Larry would say of this decision in his book, quote, it was a terrible mistake, end quote. And with these first two marriage examples, you're quickly learning how Larry falls in and out of love. Larry would again claim this mate was a harlot with different men all of the time. I'm going to take a moment here to call bullshit on Larry. The reason being... Throughout his book, he describes how he was always cheating on his wives and girlfriends his entire life. But in relationships where his wives had sex with other men, and the relationship bittered, they are then described as harlots. Not cool, Larry. Not cool. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if you want to be polyamorous, all the power to you. But to choose to be poly and restrict your partner seems hypocritical at best and selfishly misogynistic at worst. Feels like an uneven power balance always tilted in Larry's favor. Anywho, Peggy became pregnant again. This time, the child was Larry's. As you might imagine, 
adding a child to the mix did not help the relationship. Also, what did not help the relationship was the fact that Larry literally hated his mother-in-law, the one that barred him from visiting Peggy when they were younger because Peggy's mother mutually hated Larry. Larry blamed the mother for Peggy's behaviors he found unbecoming. And one day, fueled by some liquid courage, Larry decided to confront the mother-in-law. A quote from Larry's autobiography describes the dramatic scene that day. And I quote in the words of Larry Flint, I don't remember how it got started, but I do remember that I had been drinking. After one too many beers, I made my way to Ernestine's house, let myself in, and began to shout my displeasure. I caught her by surprise. She alternately cowered on the sofa and leaned forward, shouting back at me. I was furious, and at the height of the confrontation, I threw a telephone at her, pulled a pistol out of my pocket, and screamed, quote, I think I'll just kill you! Ernestine jumped up in a panic and ran past me. I pulled off a couple of rounds, shooting over her head. In her haste to escape, she ran out of the door, tripped, and fell down a flight of stairs to the street. I stomped out, leaving her in a heap on the sidewalk. I was mad as hell, but I wasn't stupid enough to actually shoot her. End quote. As the boomers would say, that escalated quickly. But wait, the story gets better. Larry continues, quote, My 1951 Studebaker was parked outside. I jumped in and fled, burning rubber as I pulled away. By the time I got a few blocks down the street, I was going 80 miles per hour. I was in a blind rage. I tried to make a left turn at Needmore Road, but couldn't bleed off enough speed. I did a four-wheel drift through some poor guy's front yard, barely missed a couple of trees, swung around the house, hit a wire fence around his just-planted garden, and blew two tires. The owners of the house were sitting on the front porch as I careened by. End quote. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I got to pause there again. Can you imagine this? You're chilling on your front porch. You're drinking your Arnold Palmer on a beautiful afternoon, holding your honey's hand. And suddenly someone Tokyo drifts fast and furious style through your front garden. Ah, what a scene. All right, let's continue. Larry went on to say, quote, The owners of the house were sitting on the front porch as I careened by. They scattered like flies. I just kept on going, flat tires and all, until I made it to the Kiwi. I jumped out of the car, sprinted upstairs, and was pretending to shave when the police arrived. They were not fooled. I was arrested and charged with shooting with intent to wound, drunk driving, leaving the scene of an accident, and driving with a license under revocation. Considering the fact that my car was covered with dirt and chicken wire and had two flat tires, it was hard to plead innocence. My mother's attorney advised me that the only way I could avoid a long prison sentence was to claim temporary insanity and submit to a psychiatric incarceration. I reluctantly agreed and was sent to the Dayton State Hospital. End quote. Despite all of this relationship drama and his brief stint in a psych ward, Larry was making his bar successful. It is said Larry worked upwards of 20 hours a day many days, regularly using amphetamine pills to stay awake days on end. The bar was known to have some rough clientele from Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia. So Larry decided to change the name from Kiwi to Hillbilly Haven 
He rebranded it to be an old Western-style country joint. But with that clientele came rough-and-tumble days. Larry mentions many intense fights. Once the Hillbilly Haven Bar began earning about $1,000 per week, Larry redistributed the profits by starting two more bars. The next bar Larry started in late 1965 was called Larry's Hangover Tavern. Classy. This was across from a lot of factories catching the lunch and evening clientele. It was at this bar that Larry installed vending machines and pinball machines. The constant stream of income from coins going into his machines would inspire Larry later to start his own vending machine business on the side of his bars. There's no denying that Larry was a hardworking man. The third bar Larry soon started was named The Factory, also located near several factories. He used the same model that was working at Larry's Hangover Tavern, sell food at lunchtime to the working stiffs, then stiff drinks in the evenings to really turn a profit, and have lots of vending machines and pinball machines to empty their pockets of coins as they emptied their drinks. Larry continued making money hand over fist, so of course he decided to open yet another bar. Tired of the low-collar bar-fighting clientele of the Hillbilly Haven, Larry Flint decided to open a new, higher-class bar. His first experiment with an upper-class bar was his fourth bar in 1967 named Whatever's Right. This would be the first club Larry owned in which he employed hostesses who danced. He personally screened dozens of women, hiring the 12 he felt were the best-looking. That's it. That was the primary qualification. Larry would describe this approach in his autobiography, quote, I wanted them to be the centerpiece of a posh cocktail lounge, an elegant little place with a good sound system and popular music. There were a lot of guys who liked to go to a club and grind on a girl on the dance floor. I wanted a mix of good dance tunes from fast rock and roll to slow, sexy stuff. The whole idea was to appeal to the lonely men, middle-aged and up, in a controlled environment. His upper-scale bar was a success. But the competition was catching up. Larry heard of a new bar phenomenon called go-go clubs. He went to check one out and left impressed, and with a gold lame bikini souvenir for which he paid a dancer $100. This club would inspire Larry's next and most famous bar creation. It was late 1967, and Larry had bought a new club property in downtown Dayton, Ohio. Larry would go on to name the bar the Hustler Cocktail Lounge and open fully in early 1968 with scantily clad go-go dancers on display. Larry would clear $5,000 in pure profit the first week the club was open. Soon, the Hustler Club and Whatever's Right were doing so well, Larry decided to sell Hillbilly Haven and Larry's Hangover Tavern while increasing his business through his national vending machine company. He also opened another new upscale bar called Talk of the Town in October of 1968. But it was the Hustler Club that really did the best of all. From 1968 onward, with the help of Larry's brother Jimmy and later his girlfriend Althea Leisure, Larry Flint would open Hustler Clubs in five more cities, including Akron, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Toledo. And Larry freely owns that he was frivolously having sex with many of the dancers and bar workers around him, often many partners many times a day. He also had a few more serious relationships. 
Larry says in his autobiography of this time, quote, During that period, I had a number of ongoing relationships and countless one-night stands. I was insatiable, sometimes having a different woman every four or five hours. There may have been someone who had more women than I did, but I seriously doubt it. It got to the point where I couldn't remember who I'd screwed. I'd have to ask Jimmy or someone, have I fucked her yet? I'm not as blunt now. I usually say, I played the field pretty heavy back then. It's a deliberate understatement. I remember my secretary saying to me once, that's 18 this week, and it's only Friday. I said, huh? She said, you know what I mean. If they've been in your office more than 10 minutes, you fucked them. I couldn't argue. The more I got, the more I wanted. Sex was like a drug, end quote. Taking a brief cringy pause here, I'll remind you that you can decide whether this is Larry's continued braggadocious nature, truth, addiction, or somewhere in between. Okay, continuing Larry's sexual prowess diatribe. Quote, During this period, I had three ongoing relationships, all of which produced children, and one of which resulted in a brief marriage. The first was a beauty named Amanda Carson. She was a country girl, a young widow whose husband had been killed when their house trailer caught on fire. Her story was a soap opera. I liked her, but her countrified pace and domestic taste were in conflict with my own. Our stormy relationship, which lasted for several months, produced a child, my daughter Lisa. The second serious involvement was with Kathy Barr, a woman I met when she applied for a job at the first Hustler Club. She was a tall, gorgeous blonde in her mid-twenties. Kathy was divorced and had three kids. Kathy was probably the best sexual partner I've ever had. We dated on and off for about 18 months, and she became pregnant. In late 1968, I married her, and she gave birth to our daughter, Teresa, just after we broke up. After many intervening relationships, I met Sam Griffith. She was a barmaid at the Columbus Hustlers Club. Sam was a pretty brunette and a very good person. I began an on-again, off-again affair with her. We lived together briefly, and she too got pregnant. Sam was as promiscuous as I was, so I wasn't sure at first if it was my child. But after the boy was born, it was obvious. He was mine. We named him Larry Jr. I loved my children and supported them well, but I simply could not commit myself to one woman. I don't think men were meant to be monogamous. End quote. It was along the way that Larry would also meet a young lady by the name of Althea Leisure in 1971 when she arrived to interview at the Hustler Club in Columbus, Ohio. When Larry interviewed her and asked how old she was, she said she was 18. He knew she was lying, especially when she handed him her fake ID. Althea was actually 17, and she came from a troubled background. At the age of nine, Althea's father shot and killed her mother, her mother's best friend, her grandparents, and then himself. This left Althea and her siblings orphaned. And years later, after being transferred between different orphanage homes, Althea now was at the club making her own independent way. Larry let his heart give in and let her begin working for him at the Hustler Club. He also asked her to dinner and made love to her that same evening. All right, 
I'm going to take an editorial moment here to reflect on the power dynamic that Larry continually exploited within his clubs, as is evident in the past five minutes of speech. Listen, in my humble opinion, it's really not okay to interview, hire, and sleep with someone all on the same day. It's on the very dangerous cusp of consent, given the power dynamic and the young age. I respect Larry's accomplishments, but I'm not a fan of his behavior. Anyway. It would turn out that Althea would be one of Larry's absolute loves of his life, and she was a very intelligent businesswoman. Althea quickly worked her way up in the club ranks and further into Larry's heart. He was quite fond of her, and that she didn't mind his bold nature or that he slept with lots of other women. And he was okay that she also slept with lots of other women, as long as it was only women. Their business and romantic relationship just worked. Larry was always thinking about how to make more money. Soon, Larry would start selling memberships to his hustler clubs. Larry says of this idea, quote, They were part of a promotional scheme I devised primarily for traveling businessmen that included a plastic card entitling the bearer to a discount on drinks and free limousine service from their hotels. With a membership mailing list steadily growing, Sometime in 1972, I started to think about a newsletter that would introduce new dancers and let members know if their favorite girl had moved to a different club. Many of my clients traveled throughout the state patronizing hustler clubs in every city. End quote. It was around this time at age 27 that Larry acquired the Dayton franchise of a small newspaper called Bachelor's Beat. Larry would publish The Bachelor's Beat for two years before selling it and his vending machine business when he hit a rough time of debt. Owning The Bachelor's Beat taught Larry about written media distribution and would inspire his next adventure. In March of 1972, Larry Flint came out with the first Hustler newsletter, a four-page black-and-white monthly newsletter containing information and updates about his Hustler clubs. This Hustler newsletter soon became so popular with his customers that by May 1972, Larry expanded the Hustler newsletter to 16 pages. By early 1973, Larry ran eight clubs with each club grossing between 260000 to 520000 a year. For those good at mathing, yes, that means Larry was making millions of dollars in the early 1970s while he was in his early 30s. Larry's hard work was paying off. But the money spigot would unexpectedly slow to a drip a bit later that year. After the 1973 oil embargoes combined with stagflation, the U.S. economy was in the midst of a recession. As businessmen became more fiscally conservative, Hustler Club's revenues declined, and Larry Flint had to refinance his debts or declare bankruptcy. And this is the moment when Larry decided to turn the Hustler newsletter into a for-profit, sexually explicit magazine with national distribution. He already had an audience. He had the pretty girls. He just needed to generate the content. Larry met with Ron Fenton, owner of the National Magazine Gallery, which had a circulation of about one million readers. Ron offered to sell a 10% interest in exchange for a loan of $50,000 and stock. Larry would give him 10% of Mini Clubs of America, Larry's holding company, and 10% of Gallery's stock. And on November 1st, 1973, Larry merged his Hustler magazine with Gallery as its co-publisher. 
In July of 1974, Larry published the first edition of the pornographic magazine Hustler. The first few issues went mostly unnoticed, but within a year, Hustler magazine became highly lucrative. While Larry wasn't the first to publish a sexually explicit magazine, his genius innovation was designing a national distribution model. Up to this point in America, sexually explicit material had been distributed at a local level for many reasons. One being, the legality of the distribution was not exactly clear. Some states allowed some forms based on differing community standards, but many did not. That legal gray area of pornographic distribution and ownership per state could quickly become a federal offense should the distribution cross state lines, as pornography was also not exactly legal at the federal level. Additionally, the wider you distributed the material, the bigger the target upon your back, with the authorities looking to mitigate pornography distribution. If you got too big and you bent the rules too hard, the government was going to come for you. Later, Larry would shift his publishing from Gallery to Capital, a more stable publishing company. But first, he had to front enough money to publish the first six issues as insurance to the new publishing firm. The only way in which Larry could think of how to quickly get that amount of money was not a legal way. He decided to stop paying withholding tax for his employees and sales tax to the state. He figured that would give him about $350,000 by diverting the tax money to a different account, and he could front the rest. Let it be known that the government rules never deterred Larry Flint. He continued to push the envelope with each magazine drop. He would admit he took inspiration from a competitor tabloid titled Screw by Larry's friend Al Goldstein, and he wanted to one-up his competitors continually. In November of 1974, Hustler showed the first pink shots. Now, for those of you not familiar with the business term, those are up-close photos of exposed vaginas. This was extremely controversial at the time. Hustler was the first major publication to show something like that. And it caused a lot of attention for Larry's magazine, both good and bad. From that point on, Larry Flint had to fight to publish each issue of Hustler, as many people, even including some of his distribution companies, now found the magazine too explicit and threatened to remove it from the market. But Larry would fight for distribution under the premise of the freedom of speech, a premise he would be willing to fight for literally his entire life. By April 1975, Larry Flint's Hustler magazine was making over $500,000 in gross profit, for which Larry was very thankful. Larry still had back taxes he needed to reimburse rather quickly after using the IRS and the state of Ohio to finance the start of Hustler magazine. And by June 1975, the clubs were no longer financing the magazine, but rather, the clubs were being financed by the magazine. And soon, Larry would publish a naked photo so scandalous it would cause controversy in the White House and make Hustler a household name. Larry Flint was approached by a paparazzo who had taken pictures of former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, the wife of deceased President Kennedy. The photos were taken in Greece by a paparazzo while she was sunbathing nude, age 41, on vacation with her now shipping magnate husband, Aristotle Onassis, in 1971. Ever one to court controversy, after Playboy and Penthouse refused them, Larry purchased these photos for $18,000 and published five of the best photos in the August 1975 Hustler issue. 
Larry calls this in his autobiography, quote, the best investment I've ever made, end quote. As you can imagine, that issue attracted widespread attention, both positive and negative. Over one million copies of the Jacqueline Kennedy issue were sold within a matter of days. And Hustler went mainstream, with news magazines around the country running articles about the controversial publication, including Time, The Wall Street Journal, and Newsweek. Larry's approach to his publication was unique in his day and age. He didn't rely on advertisers because, frankly, he knew with his type of material, he probably couldn't get many of them, and those he did get would probably leave quickly due to controversy. Instead, Larry aimed toward a blue-collar audience with his salacious content, but charged a premium for the purchase price of his magazine. This allowed him to publish whatever the hell he wanted. He would publish the stuff the other guys wouldn't, and the audience in America paid for it over and over again happily. At this point, I'll mention that at some point between 1974 and 1983, Hustler magazine began sending free issues of Hustler to every member of the United States Congress. As to why, Larry commented, quote, I felt that they should be informed with what's going on in the rest of the world, end quote. With the popularity of his magazine quickly making him a millionaire, Larry Flint would buy a $375,000 mansion in 1975 to celebrate. In 1976, he founded Larry Flint Publications. This company would specialize in the production of adult entertainment, expanding the hustler business, and beginning many other adult magazines. Larry would also marry Althea, his fourth wife. Unfortunately, also in 1976, Larry would be prosecuted on the charges of obscenity by the head of a local anti-pornography committee, Simon Lease. Larry was indicted for pandering, obscenity, and organized crime, all for publishing Hustler magazine. The organized crime charge was the worst a felony that could lead to a sentence of 25 years and a fine of over $10,000. This was in direct reflection of the national distribution scheme Larry had put forth. Larry's court case was taking place just after the Miller v. California Supreme Court case decision made in 1973. In that case, Marvin Miller, the owner of a West Coast mail-order business, was convicted of sending unsolicited sexually-oriented ads through the mail. Hearing the case, the court overturned the previous understanding, maintaining that, in the future, a publication or film need only be found guilty of obscenity in the community in which it was tried. The court had also held that the prosecution need not offer any proof or expert testimony as to what constituted as obscenity. The jury would reflect the community, and decency would be defined by the community. This was probably not going to be in Larry's best interest, regardless of how the jury selection process went. This also is a real problem for First Amendment purists, giving way for local censorship that could potentially conflict with America's federal freedoms. As Larry's case headed to trial, he was faced with a new three-part test from the Miller v. California case. The parts included, one, whether the average person applying community standards would find the work taken as a whole appealed to the purient interest, two, whether the work depicted or described in a patently offensive way sexual conduct specifically defined or prohibited by the applicable state law, and three, 
whether the work taken as a whole lacked serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. All three tests had to be met to get a conviction. But because the, quote, local community standards apply, quote, the jury could just ignore the guidelines full stop and state that this was inappropriate for their community. So the guidelines kind of didn't matter. Larry's defense gathered 86 different magazines to exemplify the explicit content already freely distributed around the community and level set that Hustler, while perhaps the most popular, was not at all the worst of the worst relative to content. After reviewing the materials thoroughly, the judge decided this evidence was irrelevant because the jury already reflected the community, so there was no further need to gauge the standards. The prosecution would predictably argue how unacceptable the magazine's material was, choosing the worst excerpts and photos to highlight. Larry's defense would argue semantics over where the magazine was published and attempt to remove the organized crime felony. And they would emphasize the right to free speech being all speech. An excerpt from Larry's lawyer's closing statement is as follows, quote, Freedom doesn't mean anything if it's not offensive. Freedom is putting up with an awful lot in society that is distasteful. Freedom is only meaningful if it includes all speech, no matter who is offended by it. It would be a hazardous undertaking for anyone to start separating the permissible speech from the impermissible, using the standard of offensiveness. The freedom guaranteed in the First Amendment is indivisible. You can't take it away from Larry Flint and keep it for yourself. The real issue of this case is, are we afraid to be free? End quote. But his lawyer's dramatic close wouldn't be enough to save his client. Larry was sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison and with an $11,000 fine. No bond, maximum sentence. Larry was heard shouting as he was taken from the courtroom to the Hamilton County Jail. Quote, are we really living in a free country? Theatrics aside, ultimately Larry only served six days in jail, as his lawyers had filed an appeal and got Larry out on bond. Soon after Larry and Althea married in 1976, Larry would briefly be touched by God. This God touch came about soon after Larry met Jimmy Carter's sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton. After being introduced by mutual friends, Larry had begun to have regular conversations with Ruth about her love for God, reflecting on his own hedonistic life and why he has lived the way he has. As their friendship deepened, Larry invited Ruth and her husband Bob to a weekend getaway with him and Althea at their Bexley mansion. A few weeks later, while flying on his private jet, Larry claimed to have an out-of-body experience in which he found God. He would many years later probably more accurately refer to this experience as a manic-depressive chemical imbalance episode, but in the moment, on the plane, and soon after, it was God. Totally God. The next day, Larry called Althea to excitedly tell her what happened. It would be an understatement to say Althea was bemused by what she was hearing from her pornographer husband, especially in the coming weeks when Larry began socializing ideas to shift Hustler into becoming a Christian magazine and started reviewing some of the publishing decisions with God. Althea kept the business running while Larry was inspired by higher powers. But Larry wasn't making it easy. 
Larry decided as part of his Christian conversion that everyone working for him deserved a better wage, including the women. He would announce during a staff meeting, quote, Nobody can live on $7,000 a year. So beginning the first of the year, everybody, clerks, editorial assistants, secretaries, will be making a minimum of $15,000 annually. I'm going to turn some of the empty space we've got available into a daycare center so women can bring their kids to work and visit them during coffee breaks, end quote. While altruistic and ahead of his time, Larry wasn't thinking about the overall impact of the bottom line his manic or religious-driven ideas were having on Hustler. In early 1978, while Larry's appeal of the Cincinnati court decision was still pending, another obscenity indictment was filed against Hustler in Lawrenceville, Georgia. On March 6th, as Larry walked back to the courthouse after a lunch break with his team of lawyers, gunshots rang out. A gunman named Joseph Paul Franklin shot Larry Flint and his lawyer, Gene Reeves, multiple times outside the courtroom in Georgia. By the time Larry arrived at the hospital, he had lost most of his blood from an abdominal artery that had been severed by a 44 Magnum bullet. Several procedures were performed to stop the internal bleeding rapidly occurring in Larry's body along with repairing the vital organs struck by the bullets. Over six feet of Larry's intestines were removed. The doctors gave a grim prognosis and said he needed to be airlifted to Emory University Hospital for more surgeries in order to survive. Once Larry arrived at Emory University, the search for Larry's continued internal bleeding continued. Rapid blood transfusions were barely keeping Larry alive in the interim. Larry had also developed a raging infection in his body. First things first, the infection didn't matter if they couldn't keep blood in his body. A radiologist suggested they use a new technology called a CAT scan to attempt to find the source of the bleeding. Within moments of using the CAT scan, they found the source. An artery one half an inch from Larry's heart had been nicked by a piece of shrapnel still lodged nearby. The doctor fixed this leakage source, and Larry's prognosis was changed from critical to poor as now they needed to address the abdominal infection flowing through Larry's body. Every antibiotic the doctors tried proved not strong enough. Larry's prognosis became critical again, with doctors advising he had about 24 to 48 hours to live. This grim news was shared in the news, where a CDC doctor heard of Larry's plight. He called Emory University and advised that they had an experimental drug they could make available to the university and Larry if he signed the consent. Althea signed the consent on Larry's behalf and the experimental antibiotic was applied via IV while Larry's body was packed in ice in an attempt to prevent brain damage from the fever he had been suffering from for days. The antibiotic worked. Within a few hours, the infection and fever began to subside. After a couple more surgeries, Larry was in a stable state, but he still had a huge fight ahead of him to become a functional member of society again. The shooting had permanently paralyzed Larry in the legs, causing him to be bound to a wheelchair and also caused speech impediments. But more devastatingly, the shooting had passed through the bundle of nerves at the base of the spine called the cauda equina, Latin for the horse's tail. Instead of severing Larry's spinal cord, the bullet fragment severed individual nerve fibers. This not only paralyzed Larry, but also made him suffer from what is known as peripheral nerve damage. This type of injury is known to give humans the worst type of pain imaginable. 
Larry would compare it to being perpetually suspended in a vat of boiling water from the waist down. Doctors would explain to Larry that the burning sensation is called cosalgia, or neurogenic pain. It would be around this time that Larry would lose God again. It was hard for Larry to believe in God, giving anyone in life this level of unforgivable and inescapable pain. Larry said he wasn't interested in a God who could let people suffer in such a way. Fighting numerous court cases, recovering from a life-changing assassination attempt, and happily married in 1978 is where we will leave part one of the two-part episode of Larry Flint's Unique Life. Join us for part two to learn about Larry's successful Supreme Court win against Jerry Falwell and to hear the Shakespearean ending to the love of Althea and Larry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Controversial Figures. Just a reminder to please like, subscribe, and leave a rating and comment for Controversial Figures in your favorite podcast app. We have a Twitter page at Figures Podcast, so please follow us, give us recommendations of controversial figures you'd like to hear. This podcast is an independent podcast created by Tammy Hawkins. This is funded by those that donate, so please join Controversial Figures on Patreon and give what you can. I'll send out swag to all donators. Research references are available in the show notes as our musical references. As many of us have been in lockdown for an extended period in 2020, I'd like to ask a favor. Reach out to someone you know that you haven't spoken with lately and have a conversation. Humans need each other now more than ever, and it's hard to see that need while we all stay safe at home. Let someone know they're important to you. I hope you all are staying as healthy and happy as possible and know that you are important to me. Be well.